Hello, welcome to another episode of the Project Purple podcast. I'm Dino Varelli, founder and CEO of Project Purple. And today we're actually offsite in New York City on the eve of the pre-seed consortium meeting here. And I've got a good friend of mine, a guy that I've gotten to know pretty well over the last couple of months. We're working on some things that maybe we'll get into, but all the way from I'm not going to say Portland. Oh, Portland, Oregon. There we go. I was just going to say Oregon, but Dr. Aaron Grossberg. Aaron, how are you? Doing well. Thanks for having me, Dino. And I, I, I got to be honest with you. So I did some homework ahead of time. You're a tough guy because there's not a lot of about you on Google. Usually I can get like a snippet or piece uh, about a particular guest. Um, I Googled you and all your medical stuff comes up, but nothing, nothing beyond the medical, which is a good thing, Aaron. But we were talking here before we started recording for our audience listening at home, how you used to live here in the city with your wife. So this is kind of a little bit of a homecoming, coming back to New York and kind of being here for the meeting, but also enjoying some quality time with your wife. Oh, absolutely. I, uh, I told her that I had a chance to come back for this meeting and her eyes lit up right away. Um, we moved here She's almost 20 years ago, wow. coming out of college, and she is a professional modern dancer, and she danced with a number of companies over the course of a couple of years while I actually had my introduction to cancer research at uh, NYU Tisch Hospital. And so we basically take advantage of any opportunity we can to get back here together. Um, we're lucky enough to have someone watch the kids and give us a shot. <laughs> Awesome. Awesome. And I was going to just say, you know, usually what we do with our guests is we give them an opportunity, give us a background. You've already landed some great nuggets that I'm going to, I'm going to hit on here. I'm, I am taking notes. I always say if we had a vlog, people would see me taking notes like crazy on our guests. But uh, with that being said, this is your opportunity to share with our audience. And we've got a pretty vast audience and we've had survivors, scientists, uh, special guests that are athletes, professional athletes, amateur athletes. So we've had a, a vast variety of guests on the Project Purple podcast. And what we always like to do is just give our audience kind of the opportunity to hear from the guests themselves a little bit about their background. And with that, I always say you can go as high level or you can go as deep as you want and we'll take it from there. Well, thank, thanks for the open invitation to, to talk <laughs> about that. Uh, <laughs> Uh, you know, I, I feel like I used to tell people I got to where I am a kind of unconventional route, but now to, to get to the point um, where, you know, getting to be an academic physician, you have to do to a large extent the traditional route. So I'll, I'll step back in time a little bit and say that um, uh, growing up, all I knew was that I didn't want to be a doctor. And the reason I was convinced of that is because my father was a physician. He was a pediatrician, still is in uh, rural Pennsylvania. And that I always had to share my dad with his patients, and uh, and I thought, man, like I I don't I don't want to be I don't want to share myself when I'm older with you know two different groups, um, and I feel like uh, dis twist as I weigh twist as I tried against my fate, uh, ultimately the fate won won through, and um, I kind of saw the same beauty that he saw in the practice of medicine, and just found my own way here. Um, but, uh, so did you know, like at some point, was there a trigger point in your early adulthood or in high school and college that you said, Hey man, like knowing that you shared your, your dad with his practice and with his patients, but did something just happen that said, all right. Yeah. I think two things. One of them happened about two blocks from where we're sitting right now. Wow. Um, I was sitting there thinking about um, what I was going to do with this. I was working as a technician in the laboratory of Harry Oster. Uh, he's a human geneticist 
Um, he was at NYU. I think he's at Columbia now. And we were researching prostate cancer. And one of the things that I really appreciated from that experience was every time I had an idea that I thought was so great, he, uh, Harry, who was trained as, uh, as a physician, had the ability to, to dive into that deep knowledge of human physiology and what it is that patients actually go through and say, these are reasons that is or isn't a good idea or worth pursuing. And I thought, wow, this, like to have the grasp on both sides, the light bulb went off in my head. And I said, if I'm going to do a, if I'm going to be a scientist, if I'm going to do this, that's how I have to do this. And he said to me, yeah, there's this thing called an MD PhD program and you can be a doctor and you can be a scientist. Have you ever heard of it? And I said, no, <laughs> but from that point forth, uh, um, it just became clear that the marriage of science and medicine was where uh, was was going to be my entree into that. So you followed that, and typically that's not the route, though. For our audience at home that is listening that doesn't know this, I mean, typically either people go into a lab and they stay in a lab, and there's I'm not we're not saying good or bad here, or they go into a clinical setting and deal with patients and. Um, they're on the MD side versus kind of splitting time between both or getting, it's a lot more work to do both. It's certainly a longer road yeah. to get here, <laughs> which is it's why all, I can say that all. that happened 20 years ago yeah. <laughs> and, I, and I'm still an assistant professor. Um, but uh, yeah, you know, I think in, in, in my sort of appreciation for it, either side alone was just going to be fed so much by the other. And the other idea was, and I, there was a really wise man who told me this, uh, he said, take your current age and subtract it from 65. And at the time I was 23 and I said, okay, I got 42. He's like, you wanna do what you're doing today for the next 42 years? And I said, I, I don't think so. <laughs> and he said, well, it's a long time. So don't worry about how long it takes to get there. It's a long time. And sure. uh, I, think, I think the advice was well taken. It's fascinating. So from New York, from realizing then that you wanted to go this route, where does that take you? Yeah. So, uh, you know, I applied to schools and um, I ultimately decided to go to uh, Oregon Health and Science University in Portland, Oregon. Um, part of it was uh, was dictated by the fact that that being in New York was a really intense experience. Um, and my wife and I knew if we were going to get in this for the long haul, we would probably start a family and that sort of thing. And we were nervous about staying in the city. Um, the other thing was that uh, my entree into science was really neuroscience, um, uh, and I can talk about that a little bit more in a minute, but um, at OHSU, they had um, really, a, and still do have a world-renowned neuroscience program, and it really attracted me as I, as I had the opportunity to talk to them about the directions in neuroscience that, that we could take, and it just seemed like the perfect marriage of life, location, and uh, training, and I... So, so that, that was the decision we made and kind of put our, put our names on the line. Did you guys have family out there or friends? I mean, you're from, it sounds like from central PA or yeah. somewhere in Pennsylvania. Your wife is from, from Houston, Houston. Okay. So no one on the West coast. Nope. Went out there blind. Although at the time, one of my best friends did live there, but he nicely moved away shortly after <laughs> I arrived. <laughs> the irony of it all. Always. Awesome. Um, so you get to OS. OHSU, say that 10 times really fast. Good luck. Um, and you go in the neuroscience program. Is that where the direction was originally? I did. And I'll take a step back. I'll say, you know, as, a, as in college, I, uh, I started off in sort of a pre-med curriculum and I didn't feel, I didn't, you know, I didn't feel it. I actually dropped out of college twice. Um, and uh, at one point was considering uh, 
going into full-time manual labor um, and eventually realized that I had a real passion for psychology. And, and the particular thing I was interested in is how the condition of the body could affect the condition of the mind. Uh, but it turned out that there was very little known about that or at least very little taught about it. And, um, and by the time I finished college, I knew, still knew almost nothing about that topic. Uh, so when I got to OHSU, um, I was uh, really won over by, by the uh, scientist who became my mentor and still is my good friend, Dan Marks. Uh, Dan, his work focused on uh, a wasting condition called cachexia, where the body kind of eats itself away during sickness. And although that doesn't sound like neuroscience, Dan was a neuroscientist and he was interested how the body was talking to the mind and how the mind then was helping or the brain was then controlling this process. And during my time with him and, and, and during prior graduate students time with him and, and subsequent ones, he's really investigated what the source of that connection is to the brain, how the body talks to the brain and how the brain then enacts a program that can in this case be extraordinarily self-destructive. And that really resonated with me having seen and actually experienced, right? If you've ever been real ill, you can feel it. It almost feels like your body's turned on you. Um, and you see it in your friends and family when they're sick. Um, and that resonated with me as, as being kind of the core of what it is to be sick versus healthy. And so that launched my direction, um, which is sort of in a roundabout way now come back to cancer, which is probably the best discussed version of um, or, or scenario for cachexia to develop. However, um, for which we probably know the least about how that happens. So originally going in, you weren't focused on cancer at all. Not this at all. Beyond the scope of where you were going. Yeah, I had no idea what kind of doctor I was going to be. But you knew you wanted to do neuroscience. You knew Dan was a great mentor for you. Really intrigued by this these topics. So you started OHSU and then you go and do your residency, if I did my research right, at MD Anderson? That's correct, yeah. So at the end of, um, of medical school, in the, in a, uh, they, they tell you never to make a decision post-call. For those <laughs> people who didn't have the joy of going to medical school, post-call is after you've been working for 40 hours straight and, um, and haven't <laughs> slept. Um, and you usually have some sort of morning thing to do after that uh, and then try to drive home and stay alive for the drive home. Probably the most dangerous part of that process. And um, in that moment, I wasn't sure what I was going to do. And I was presenting my research at a, a research day. And uh, the, the head of radiation oncology came by and said to me, you ever think about radiation oncology? And I looked at him, said, sure. <laughs> <laughs> he said, well, come on by next week. You know, come into our department. We'll set you up. And I think it was kind of love at first sight when I got there. With the radiation With oncology. the radiation. And this was at OHSU? Or was, at this was at OHSU. Gym. So this was during my, I only had about a year before I was starting residency. So I, uh, I think it's most common to do some away rotations, do things to yeah. try to enrich your chance of getting into a nice residency. And I, I had to really scramble to do that. Um, fortunately, um, the, the kind doctors at MD Anderson um, uh, saw fit to give me a shot and come down there and train with them. So you go to MD Anderson and do your residency in radiation oncology at MD Anderson three years, four years, four years. Yeah. And then at the end of those four years, then you decide like, where do you want to kind of plant and kind of start to focus on your practice? And Exactly. 
And in in my situation, um, it was a little unusual. I I, I did an alternative uh, training plan where they allow me some protected time to focus on research. And it's a a relatively small percentage of radiation oncology residents go through this. Um, And the idea is that you can build a lab Mm -hmm. at the back end and really build a research career. But it's also a rather, um, there's just not a lot of job opportunities there. So there weren't there weren't a lot of places I could go um, and to choose from. And I had to shop myself pretty aggressively. Um, but I felt really fortunate that Oregon was willing to, to offer me back. a spot and bring me back. Um, and it had such an exciting pancreatic cancer um, uh, collaborative that, that, that was building and still is building. And that was clearly the direction I wanted to move with my career. Um, and so it was really a match made in heaven. So that happened, when did you come back to OHSU? About a year and a half ago. About a year and a half ago. So you were down at MD Anderson then when the names, and these are just guests that we've had, uh, Anna Bond mm-hmm. and uh, Eugene Coy, who's a radiation oncology. I don't know if you know Eugene. Very well. He's been on the podcast before. He's run for us, so not to put any pressure on you, Aaron. <laughs> Eugene's a better runner than I am, <laughs> but I'll do it. <laughs> he did be, and you must know Joe Herman. Of course. So Joe ran for another charity, a very good charity, the V Foundation, but Eugene ran for us here at the New York City Marathon two years ago, so back in 2000. And, uh, last year, actually, so 2018, and um, the competitive spirit that I am, I told Eugene he's got to beat Joe, um, and I think he ended up beating Joe. So, uh, and I know Joe not as well as I know Eugene, but I gave Joe a kind of a hard time for not running for us. But you know, the V Foundation is a great charity, and uh, I just remember being out on the course at mile 24, and, and you're a city guy, New York City guy, so you know that probably where this is going to be when I describe it. It's right at Fifth Ave around the 90s when you head into Central Park sure. there and we had a, a chair zone set up and you know it, at that point it's like mile 24 it's awful and Fifth Ave <laughs> right there is a little bit of a hill like on any other given day other than running 24 miles prior it's no problem but because you ran 24 miles prior it looks like Mount Rush- Rushmore at that point and Eugene just I just was yelling to him he he didn't look good and I just said just beat Joe and he just like he just pushed through but that that's uh I like Joe a lot they're both great guys and they're both radiation oncologists at MD Anderson they are and they're they're both a big part of the reason that I'm doing this now and they've been incredibly supportive to me as I get my career started um, so I, I, I couldn't say enough nice things about either of them. Interestingly, Eugene was kind of my um, role model for going through residency. When I, when I went there to visit the uh, residency, they put me on his service and he showed me firsthand the example of being able to launch a research career while training in radiation oncology. Um, and so uh, I, I'm, I'm not sure without having seen him do that, mm-hmm. that I'd be here today doing what I'm doing. So Eugene, uh, you know, for our listeners at home and full disclosure, he was a recipient of a of a, one of our grants about four years ago. So you might have been there when he received that yeah. that, that grant. Yeah. If, uh, you've only been at OHSU for a year and a half. Well, back to back to OHSU. So yeah. such a small world. And always, I found that in pancreatic cancer and radiation, they're probably it's the two smallest, smallest circles. Word. Yeah. And uh, yeah, it's a pretty tight Venn diagram here. So let's talk a little bit about what's going on at OHSU. So you are the assistant professor for radiation medicine. Your focus is radiation oncology with the pancreas team there. Uh, I know a couple folks, Rosalie Sayers, who's there. I've, we've talked to Dan. Um, unfortunately, Dan won't be here at Precede. He had kind of a family emergency, but he's heavily involved in what's happening with the Precede consortium. But 
you guys have built this kind of powerhouse team there on the West Coast. I mean, I, I, I don't know if our listeners at home, how many people have been up to that upper Northwest corridor of the United States. But, you know, I think people think Portland and they think like kind of like, you know, the rain or, you know, the forest, the green Nike, of course, is up in that area. So a lot of people have that's probably the first thing. But it has become kind of a center of excellence, in particular for pancreatic cancer. Yeah, it really has. And, and I've actually been fortunate enough to get to watch the whole thing build because when I got there, the campus was probably less than half the size it is now. Um, I think even then it was the biggest employer in the state, but now by by a long shot it is. Um, and uh, it's been really incredible to see uh, Rosie and Dan and Brett Shepard, who yep. I should have mentioned earlier because Brett's a, a pancreatic cancer surgeon who, um, who I rotated with as a medical student, uh, infamously on one of the most challenging services at, 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 at that uh, university. And uh, the experience really opened my eyes. Um, you, you can't complain about working 100 hours a week when the guy you're working for is working 110 and um, always had time for his patients and his, and his trainees. Uh, so real mentor for me in that sense. And so Brett and Rosie put together this uh, pancreatic cancer consortium or uh, uh, center called the Brennan Colson Center with some funding from two families. Um, and since doing that, they've been able to organize uh, what is a really robust pancreatic cancer treatment program and pull that together with uh, world-class researchers as we can. And, you know, at this point we, we have um, a really strong core of scientists, a really strong core of clinicians, and we are actually actively recruiting more scientists to join our team. What makes it so special is that we work together incredibly well. If anybody needs anything, everybody goes out of their way to help help it happen. Um, and right now there's a, a flurry of activity and we expect a whole lot of really exciting stuff to come out in the next couple of years as we've, we've, we've brought together teams that focus on everything from the center of the cancer to the most distant part of um, pancreatic cancer biology and, and patient care. Awesome. And Full disclosure, Phil Knight, I know you guys are part of the Knight Cancer Center. Phil Knight, who's the founder of Nike, did donate a large sum of money, which is awesome to see. Philanthropy yeah. happen at its best, right? So the, I know that helped you guys. I know from talking to Rosalie quite a bit, uh, just from previous discussions and meetings, that uh, that's been wonderful to have. Yeah, it's, it's, it's essential. I mean, you need research and medicine is extraordinarily expensive. It doesn't happen for free. It's not free. Yeah. And you know what? I mean, we're wrong way more than we're right. And you've got to, that makes it all more expensive because you've, you've got to be able to fund all the wrong to get to the right. right. Um, but the right is worth it. And at least in, in our eyes. And we were so glad that in Phil's, Phil's eyes as well. Awesome. And yours. So well, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for what you do. We don't get to do the things we do without the work of so many clinicians, you know, and I think that's something that we tend to stress a lot because, uh, you know, it's this, it's amazing what we can do raising money with events, but um, we've got to put that money to work and get stuff done, you know, and, and that comes, we don't do the work. That's you guys actually physically doing the work. So we appreciate it. I want to talk and shift gears just a little bit here. And this is something I, and I think, you know, the last four or five years, I think has become more common. But I, I look at um, my personal experience. My mom had breast cancer in 2001 and she had radiation. Recurrence in 2016, she couldn't do it. Um, but it was different 
ball field in terms of treatment options because of the advances in breast cancer. When my dad was diagnosed in 2008, you know, he was a Whipple candidate. So he had the Whipple and then he did chemotherapy. But we even asked then, like, what about radiation? You know, does radiation come to play? It was like non-existent, right? And then about four or five years ago, I remember one of our patients saying, hey, I'm going in for this radiation therapy. And I say one of our patients that we were helping with our aid program and, and battling pancreatic cancer. And now it's kind of become kind of, I wouldn't say first line treatment because I would consider chemotherapy first line treatment, but almost complementary to that first line treatment. And I know in some cases it's actually done before they do chemotherapy now. So in essence, it could be first line treatment. Why is that? And for our audience listening at home, you know, some people may just have, like I always thought, like radiation was never an option for pancreatic cancer, but that's changed. Well, I think there's two really important things. This is a, this is a really great question. I'm glad you brought it up. Yeah. Um, the first thing is just thinking broadly about cancer. When we treat pancreatic cancer um, or many cancers, um, we have to think about two things. The first is where the cancer is itself. And the second is, is if it could metastasize elsewhere. And the way we kind of bring these uh, this approach together when we're thinking about cure is use surgery and radiation to take care of the local area and then use chemotherapy to take care of any renegade cells that might have escaped. And the hope is, is that um, by using that combination, you'll be able to take care of both sets of, of, of risk. Um, and the problem and the reason radiation had fallen out of favor is historically when we did these uh, studies with radiation um, and we actually compared plus minus radiation, we found that chemotherapy was very helpful after um, the surgery, after the Whipple but that radiation didn't seem to improve survival and had some marginal effects on, on, on whether or not the cancer came back locally. And so it really did fall out of favor nationally and internationally. Um, but a lot's changed. Radiation itself has changed dramatically since then. We used to sort of just treat a big bland area of the abdomen, which had a lot of toxicity associated. It took a long time, five or six weeks. And, um, and we couldn't really justify and say that it was gonna work. Um, but since then, uh, because our imaging has gotten better, our precision's gotten better, we've learned some tricks to help control the way the body moves. We can be much more focused with our radiation and much more thoughtful about how we deliver it. So the ways that this has changed things um, are for those patients who can have a resection, many centers are now offering radiation before the resection. And the goal there is to kill all the cancer cells on the outside of the tumor so that when the surgeon takes it out, they don't leave any cancer cells behind. The other um, two times it's used, one is after surgery, if the surgeon does happen to have a positive margin. We give chemotherapy and if the patient is still without any evidence of disease, we'll do radiation then. We're not 100% con convinced that that is um, uh, effective yet. We, there's a trial that should report soon that will tell mm -hmm. us, but it, we still tend to do that to give people the benefit of the doubt and maximal therapy where we think they're at risk. But perhaps most exciting is when patients are in a state where we don't think that they can have surgery. And some advances that I was just mentioning, along with some new drug advances, are telling us that, that perhaps we can't really can concentrate radiation at a dose that's much higher and may actually be effective. And actually, just a few months ago, um, a group out of Memorial Sloan Kettering here, um, led by Chris Crane, showed that by offering that escalated dose radiation very focally to the pancreas, they got results that were roughly equivalent to having surgery. 
And so that really- A non-resectable patient. A non-resectable patient. So that really speaks to the fact that if done appropriately and in the right patients, radiation can be an, a complementary or alternative effective therapy. And now the trick is to figure out how to put this all together in the best way possible for each patient. So this is somewhat of a loaded question that I'll ask that just came to my mind. Is it that the technology of radiation has gotten better or have we just figured out the disease better on how we should administer the radiation? Um, I'm not sure we figured out the disease that much better from a treatment perspective. The one exception would be to say that the chemotherapy is getting better and the better the chemotherapy gets and the more important us providing what we call local Localized. control and, and, and treating the area where the tumor initially came becomes more and more uh, important as the risk of having a distant metastasis goes down. So that, um, that in that sense, we are learning the disease better. But it really has a lot more to do with the technology and understanding how to deliver the radiation because right next to the pancreas, our target are a lot of, um, of the bowel and the bowel hates radiation. So we have to be able to give a dose to the pancreatic tumor that is high enough to kill the tumor without hurting the bowel oh. that literally sits right next to it. And that's where the tricks come in. So for our audience listening at home and we, in, in, this is a podcast, we don't have a video, so we can't put up any diagrams or anything, but can you articulate how that's done? Sure. Uh, because I know in the past, like my mom, for example, um, you know, she had breast cancer. So it was very, um, it, it, I don't want to sound crude or rude, but it wasn't very precise, I think, mm -hmm. where I had a friend who his brother had esophageal cancer, throat cancer, and he had to go in and get the markers and like it was very precise in that location. He had to go through all this stuff prior to and how they set him up on the on the table and everything. So mm -hmm. with pancreatic cancer, is it kind of the similar it, in terms of being so precise? It has to be like you're saying, like we have to hit the tumor and not the bile or else there's all these complications. So, so it can be when we when we're trying to deliver that that high dose of radiation um uh that's how we do it we do still sometimes treat the lower dose and kind of you know treat a larger area with with somewhat less advanced techniques um and that's in the case when when the tumor is gone and mm. we're worried about there being Metastasis, a few cells yeah. left over um and it's hard to you can't see them so you kind of have to be a little bit more broad um, but if you can see your target so the, the first advantage is that we're getting much better our imaging is better and we can see the target a second thing we do is we often use breath hold to as a way to help things stop moving because the pancreas itself will move transit almost an inch um, uh, up and down as as well as in and out um, while you're breathing and so obviously if you have to take it all into that into account you have to widen the area you treat we also ask our patients often to not eat before treatment because the stomach will push directly on the pancreas and and move it um move it in a different direction or put itself in sort of harm's way um and then when our patients are on the table sometimes we have what we call fiducials or little markers placed that are very easy to see sometimes we can use our imaging that we have on our table itself and we actually in real time monitor the, the total movement of the patient and realign them every single day so that their treatment is delivered exactly where it's meant to be. Um, and it gives us that precision, that ability to, to with a, a millimeter of error or less, know exactly which part is getting um, the high dose and which part is getting a safe dose.
so is this like the nano knife i've heard that term before that's something that's, totally that's different yeah okay, that's a, that's, that's different. a different technique you know this is um you know the the most common phrase for this would be like uh, intensity modulated radiation therapy or imrt but there's a lot of categories of that um without getting into a, a alphabet soup of acronyms would just say that we we take advantage of of our ability to really paint in three dimensions with dose um, and take our advantage of our ability to make things not move so that we can paint with real certainty unfortunately we've worked with such talented physicists as that they've been able to make this happen so the dose in the center is highest and then the surrounding area the kind of the margins around it will have kind of uh, a lesser effect. Correct. And if you think about um, the way the spokes on a on a on a wheel come together yeah. in the center, yep. at any point in the bike wheel, you're more likely to hit air than a spoke, except right in the center. And that's kind of how we deliver the radiation, so that all these beams come together and they cross right in the shape that we want it to be. So there's multiple beams coming in. It can be, or we can do it in a big arc, but it functions the same way. Like so fascinating. So what used to be maybe four beams coming across, you could now think of as thousands of independent beams coming across. That all meet in that centralized location. Mm -hmm. From the patient's standpoint, this is pretty, uh, it's not invasive. Correct. The, the experience on the table is, I mean, they're x-rays. Yeah. Uh, sometimes we use protons, but uh, um, in either case, you don't feel anything as it's happening. It's, it's a little bit of sci-fi. So there's a machine moving around you. There's some lasers on in the room. And Similar to like an open MRI? Kind of. Yeah. A little bit like an open MRI. Or maybe like a CT because a CT is that half donut that kind of rotates around through you. Right. Except the CT and the MRI generally have the donut. Yeah. Whereas we uh, actually don't have a donut, donut. So it's actually a lot more open. So for, for people who are claustrophobic, Phobic, it's, yeah. it's not so bad. The hardest part is getting your planning scan in that case. So time in terms of duration of this so this occurs over uh, like let's say someone is getting radiation it's happening once a week five, five straight days oh. two weeks How, what's the uh, expectancy in terms of radiation treatment i mean i'm sure it varies clearly on patients it varies a lot and a lot of it has to do with the anatomy of the patient and the tumor um and also why we're treating um what our what our goal of that treatment is but um it can range anywhere from uh, as few as five treatments on a daily or every other day basis oh. to um 28 treatments on a daily basis so 28 straight days uh with weekends off weekends we, off yeah the weekends off tend to help people recover a little bit from some of the side effects from treatment and side effects are just like any tr traditional radiation treatment in terms. I mean, I know we're, we're zap. That's probably a bad term. That's OK. Um, but we, we say radiating the pancreas, whereas like if you're radiating in a breast or a throat or some other organ, there's always different side effects. Right. So yeah, it's, it's similar to chemotherapy or no. Not so similar to chemotherapy. Um, you know, one thing about radiation is, is you only get side effects where the radiation is delivered. So chemotherapy goes everywhere in the body. So your side effects can go, can be anywhere in the body. Um, and in the case of radiation, it's only where we are treating. Um, if we're treating like a breast, uh, people have a lot of skin side effects um, because we are actually treating close to the surface. When we treat the pancreas, we tend not to have much in the way of skin side effects. Some people will get a little redness in their skin. The most common side effects are really fatigue and nausea. And we, we have some tricks um, with medication and sort of um, uh, lifestyle advice that help people uh, through the fatigue and nausea. But 
but they can, um, th those are the primary side effects that people suffer from. It's amazing what's happening, you know, with this. And, and this, I remember now thinking about this, talking to Eugene uh, Coy back, you know, about a year ago when we were talking about his work there and he was talking how um, they were giving radiation oncology to surgical patients because they realized that MD Anderson, one of the things that radiation does is it thickens up the pancreas. Mm -hmm. So when they go to suture after, you know, while doing a uh, medical procedure, if it's a Whipple, that the uh, the skin, because the pancreas is so dense, it's like a sponge. I, I think we've talked about this on previous podcasts where if you take a pair of scissors and cut a sponge and then try to sew that back together, how challenging that could be. So that would be like kind of like how pancreas is. That's how surgeons have described it. So if you radiate it, it kind of gets that thick coating on it, right? And it becomes easier to suture. And they find that there's, in a small sampling, I don't know how big their their research is now, but I remember at the time he said they are seeing that in the patients that they are doing Whipple's on, that it, it's becoming less, there's less complications post-surgery with ulcers and bleeds and tears and stuff like that with those patients who did radiation oncology because of, uh, because of the treatment. Yeah. And, and you know, that, that, um, those findings have been communicated with me when I was training there at MD Anderson. And so we decided to look at OHSU at our own patients. Um, and this is really new work for us that so we just kind of got the data back a few weeks ago and we're seeing the same effect, which wow. is that, um, uh, the leaks are, are much fewer and the complications appear to be less in general, um, following radiation, which is, I think, you know, can be a little controversial to think about because you think, ooh, extra treatment, extra problems. Yeah. But in this case, I think it really does help out. And our surgeons tell us the same thing. They say it's a lot easier to work with. My last question on this, and then I want to move on to a, a kind of a complete 180. Um, where do you think radiation goes? If you had a guess, like in five years, are we still doing what we're doing? Is it getting going to get more efficient, less time? technology i mean clearly there's a lot that's kind of a loaded question of course yeah. but where do you think we are in five years with pancreatic cancer in yeah particular? i think there's two there's two different questions that are kind of embedded in there that we're working on um, asking right now and and i think the one is um for those patients who are not necessarily resectable uh, which is the, actually the majority of patients yeah. um the new data that have come out in the last couple of years out of uh, out of boston and out of new york um, and other places are suggesting that we really can do things either to improve their ability to convert to resectability or to actually treat the cancer itself um and i so i expect that we will be building off of that and really asking this in a more formalized prospective way to see if we really can make that difference and have radiation be an alternative therapy for non-surgical uh patients or a, a, a way to get you know improve our ability to get unresectable patients to surgery um and so i think that that's a real place of growth and expansion right now the other question is, is what about patients who can have the, their pancreas taken out? We have some new data from, from both from Europe and from uh, stateside that are starting to make us question that idea you started this conversation off with, which was that radiation has no place in the treatment of resectable pancreatic cancer. Um, and so one of the big questions we're asking is, 
what if you give it up front as opposed to after? When you can see the tumor, you can treat a smaller area and maybe even do it over a shorter period of time. And there's some suggestion that that really does improve the long-term outcomes, the, the success of the surgery. And so that, um, again, that question hasn't quite been asked the way it probably needs to, but um, I think I expect those to be the two big questions to be answered. Um, so I, there's certainly expansion in the unresectable area and we'll see, you know, we follow the data. It's exciting stuff. I mean, I think, you know, we, we've had plenty of clinicians on and, you know, one just the other day and we were talking about treatments and, you know, like chemotherapy treatments, like pharma hasn't brought anything to the table, uh, you know, and there hasn't been any new treatments, but this is kind of exciting. Like I said, like when my dad, like radiation, like, cause we brought that up with our oncologist and he's like, yeah, you know, we don't use radiation from pancreas or now it, if I'm reading between the lines, it's part of the discussion. Like it's part of the treatment protocol. So with that being said, Aaron, if someone's listening to this, that's just been recently diagnosed, should they advocate because patients sometimes have to be their biggest advocates for radiation? Well, that's definitely on a patient by patient basis still, because there are, um, there are times when it's clearly not the right answer. Mm -hmm. Um, one thing I advise almost all patients to do is get a second opinion at the time of diagnosis. And if you were diagnosed at a smaller center, consider going to like a major academic center. Doesn't mean you have to get your treatment there, but it's good to hear what they have to say. Um, because sometimes these things are a little, are one step ahead of the standard of care. Correct. And and having that opinion can, can be helpful. And so, so the second opinion, I think is a really important place. It, I, it's hard for me to say, yes, advocate for radiation yeah. because it's not right for everyone. Well, and I think too, that the disease is so complex and I know I asked it kind of a, that's a hard question to answer because the disease is so complex. Every case is different. So it's really going to come down, but I think it's a discussion that people should be having with their oncologists at least um, because there might, might possibly be some people in that arena that are at like a community hospital in the burbs that they don't have, and this is no disrespect to that hospital. It's probably a great hospital. They've got great doctors and scientists, but they just don't have the sophistication that an OHSU or an MSK or an NYU or a Columbia or a Mount Sinai, since we're here in New York, I'm naming all the major places, um, or Yale for that matter, that have the expertise that are doing these things. And, and I mean, I always look back at my situation with my dad and I begged and pleaded, and, and I guess I can speak from my situation. We were at a small community hospital. My parents felt very, very comfortable there. There were good doctors, but I don't think it was ever the best place for my dad to be for pancreatic cancer. And that's the one thing we stress to patients, like you gotta go see a specialist with this disease because it is so specialized. Yeah, I, I actually completely agree. Um, and and again, it's not a, an element of any disrespect, but it's good to hear the options. You know, um, As a patient, you wanna know what your options are and figure out what's right for you, what the pros and cons of each approach are. Um, and if you only hear one approach, you you won't you won't know. So I, I tell that to my patients who who see me. Um, if they can get a second opinion, you know, I, I advocate for that for them too, just so they can hear what else is available. There's no need to rush into anything. I think sometimes. I mean, I, I don't think people should wait months, but no. to wait a couple weeks to get a second opinion and to hear what your options are, or even if you are in treatment, to go. You know, it's it's funny. People call us a lot. I think for validation of what their treatment protocol is. And I say, you know, go get a second opinion. Like, 
you know, it, it's not going to hurt you, you know, and uh, in, if anything, it'll maybe give you that reassurance that the plan you have is the right plan. Exactly. You don't know that until you get a second opinion. Exactly. So let's shift gears here because I want to talk about a topic that we've talked about off the recording. And you mentioned a little bit of your work with Dan and the cachexia. And there's also this thing, uh, a tigraphy, which is movement of the body. And you're pretty dialed in on that as well, along with radiation. And how'd you get into that? Is it because of the, you know, the mentorship of Dan and kind of going in that direction? It, it is. It, do, it dates back to my, my time as a graduate student. Um, in, in the, in that lab, what we did is we had different disease models and we, and we um, did studies on, on mice and rats. And we were interested in uh, predominantly feeding behavior and, and muscle wasting and loss of fat. Um, but the thing that I noticed was the first thing that happened to all these animals is they kind of curled up into a ball and stopped moving. And I said, well, what's that about? And Dan said, well, yeah, you know, that always happens. I said, well, that's really dramatic. <laughs> and so we, we went out, um, we got some funding and we, we bought basically actigraphy or, or movement monitors for animals. And we looked at their movement and realized that um, it was an extremely sensitive way to tell an animal was not feeling well, that its recovery course really clearly corresponded with recovery from whatever the the uh the sort of illness or disease model was and then we uh went a little bit further and did some neuroscience studies and figured out that there was one specific system in the hypothalamus that was largely responsible for for causing this lethargy response to illness and we were able to show that by replacing the the um the neural chemical that is missing in the sick animals that they would behave essentially like a normal animal while sick, uh, which gave, I think we, we had some kind of funny uh, press about that because uh, it, basically to the extent that we could give you a pill that would make you feel healthy when you were sick. And I, I don't think it's quite like that, but it did speak to there being a conserved biology to this. Um, so how does that link to pancreatic cancer, I think, is the next obvious question, because we weren't doing cancer models so much then. Yeah. And the big thing with pancreatic cancer, like many cancers, um, is that uh, its initial symptoms are very vague. And in fact, it's usually about two months from the time that someone first presents to their physician until the time they're diagnosed. And that's because the, you can't feel a pancreatic mass generally. Um, things like nausea or fatigue are things that, you know, we all suffer from, day, from on certain days. And, and there's a part of us that just says, hey, toughen up, let's get through this. Um, the really hard things to tell you, oh gosh, we need to do a scan of your abdomen because you're feeling fatigued. Um, and it occurred then to us that perhaps this same phenomenon was occurring uh, in, in the case of pancreatic cancer um, that, that I explained from earlier, and that this might be a, a interesting hypothesis to test as a way to f detect cancer sort of before we can detect cancer. So my, I've got so many questions now. So this is so fascinating to me. So you've proved it in mice that a, a tigraphy, which is just basically the movement of the body, there is a correlation to mice to them being sick. Mm -hmm. So for the audience listening at home, if there's a way, Aaron, that we could identify a movement indicator to determine that people 
are sick with pancreatic cancers what eventually we would try to find to, to an extent to an extent i think i think this the, the, a very high level that's a high level discussion right i think i think that um to, to assume that we'd be able to find a signal that was completely specific to pancreatic cancer is probably um wishful thinking mm -hmm. but um if, if i'm going to take a full step back here as when I when I when I talked about you know there being vague symptoms of pancreatic cancer, but the problem is is that basically universally in medicine symptoms lead us to tests, which lead us to diagnoses. But tests without symptoms lead us to nothing but false diagnoses. Mm -hmm. And because pancreatic cancer is not that common, um, if you start testing people a lot, you can get a lot of false positives. Mm -hmm. And because the treatments are pretty significant, they're not minor at all; they're very invasive. Um, you're going to end up harming a lot of people. So you have to be thoughtful about how we do this. Um, the idea we're building this off of is one that we call bioamplification, which is your body is amplifying a small signal to tell the rest of it that something's going on. And that's really what's behind all the symptoms you get from almost any sickness that you have. So we're trying to leverage this bioamplification of that signal. And we think if we can combine looking at movement as part of telling us answering the question of when is something happening that we can combine that with um blood tests that are kind of coming online now and and new imaging tests to much more specific so that each part of the puzzle helps the other parts and so that each sort of inadequacy is filled in and by the time you get through the entire uh spectrum you're in a position where you can diagnose somebody early with some high um sensitivity and certainty because when we are sick, there is something internally that happens that we don't, we're not aware of it, right? So if we have the data or the, the trigger that we find, regardless of the illness, whether it's pancreatic cancer or some sort of illness, but we know that something's not right, then we can get to that patient population a lot sooner Absolutely. than we would until like, you know, I, I think that's the challenge with pancreatic cancer. Like the, the symptoms are so vague, right? Uh, like we said, fatigue, nausea, and, and you know, um, we've had patients on the podcast and they've talked about like, yeah, you know, I, I just had this fluttering in my stomach, you know, which I just thought was like something I ate or it was just nerves, you know, cause I was busy at work or something going on and how vague and how common is a fluttering in your stomach, right? Like, exactly. So no one's going to, you know, roll out, you know, an MRI and ERCP based on a fluttering in the stomach. It just doesn't make sense. But if there is some sort of trigger that the patient may not be aware of diagnostically or internally, I should say that we find from some sort of diagnostic tool, that could be a complete game changer. We hope so. And that's what we're going to try to test. So this leads us to early detection. One of my favorite topics. <laughs> so let's talk about that as we shift gears here. We're here at New York for the Pre-Seed Consortium. OHSU will be a center of the Pre-Seed Consortium, which is made of 34 centers worldwide, all looking at this high-risk population in terms of genetics. So let's talk a little bit about that, what you guys are doing specifically at OHSU for that population. So um, uh, Brett Shepard, who I mentioned earlier, has been running a high-risk pancreatic cancer clinic, basically out of his surgery clinic, um, uh, really out of, you know, the, the whole thing started because 
he personally has been unsatisfied with our ability to detect cancers and, and the number, the frequency with which pancreatic cancer is diagnosed when you can no longer be potentially cured. And so he, I think, was pretty visionary in getting in getting some of this up and going and has been keeping it humming along just sort of every year, every six months, getting some blood and getting some imaging on patients who have um, certain genetic mutations that make them at high risk or patients who've developed pancreatic cysts. Um, what we are now doing is we're building upon this is we've uh, at OHSU, we've got a new um, center called the Center for, or excuse me, the Cancer Early Detection Advanced Research Center, also known as CEDAR. So um, many acronyms. So many acronyms. We love acronyms now. <laughs> and they all have to be kind of cute like that. I'm sure I suspect it took a long time to come up with that. Get the, get the order just right. Um, and that is a source of uh, internal funding that helps us uh, propel ideas, really novel, uh, high-risk ideas um, that could be real game changers in this environment. And through the clinic that um, that Brett has started and now we're building out so that he doesn't have to take care of this alone, um, we're continuing to accrue more and more patients who uh, fit into this high-risk group in whom we can now have access to pre-diagnostic markers um, so that, you know, for the percentage of patients who do develop pancreatic cancer will be able to monitor that and finally see across time those changes that occur. And so we've got people looking at everything from um, RNA circulating in the blood to um, small little sub-microscopic uh, pieces of, of, of cell called um, mi microvesicles or exosomes that contain different genetic material or proteins. We have people looking um, uh, at the way that the uh, the body metabolizes different uh, nutrients, um, all these things coming together to to hopefully give us an indication of when people's what the fundamental changes are that lead to the development of, of pancreatic cancer or that signal the development of pancreatic cancer. It's so amazing because I've said to Dr. Simeon, who's been you know leading this charge with precede and, and getting partners on board with this but it's like building a roadmap like that's kind of what we're doing here for these high-risk patients that we know not all of them but they are at a higher risk of getting the disease potentially at some point in their life but if we can monitor and follow these folks we're building this map and we're going to find those triggers or where those accidents happen on this roadmap to pancreatic cancer and that's why this consortium is actually so important is having 34 centers together. This is a rare disease, even among people at high risk. It's yeah. not that half these people are no. developing the disease. It's a small, small percentage. Um, and so it's going to take big numbers to get to be able to ask these questions. Um, and it's going to take collaboration between groups where we can share what we have with each other because with the, re the relative rarity of the disease, we just don't have power to ask questions that will um in, a, in such a small group that we can be certain of the answers in yeah. and so certainty is obviously really important here we can't have people walking around with the cloud of maybe i'll have cancer um all the time it's we've got we've got to be right when we do this and so that roadmap is going to require a, a big consortium like this to, to pull together well, we're excited to play our part in this at Project Purple, and we're excited to have you on board along with the rest of the staff and team from OHSU. Um, I really appreciate your time today. We're recording on a day before. This is, I always say, this is kind of family time. So I appreciate you taking time out of your day here to help us tell the story of what you guys are doing 
all the great things over at OHSU. And the last question for you, and probably one of the most important things, and I mentioned we have a pretty vast audience. We have people from all over the world that listen to this, but if someone has a question for you and they heard something here that sparked their interest, it could be on radiation, um, could be a family out there that you know is considering it, and they want to ask you a question, what's the best place to find you? I had a hard time finding you on Google. I mean, I found your OHSU stuff, but I didn't find a lot of background on you, but what's the best place that someone could connect with you or learn more about what you guys are doing there in Portland? Yeah, no. Um, so learning about what we're doing in Portland is probably actually easier than finding me at this point. Um, uh, but, uh, we have OHSU has a website and, and we have a couple of focused websites for the Brendan Colson Center for Pancreatic Care, um, as well as um, the uh, Cancer Early Detection Advanced Research Center or CEDAR. So if you did a Google search for BCCPC, which is our Brendan Colson Center, or uh, CEDAR, CEDAR, uh, you'll, you'll get linked into that. Um, if you have questions, uh, about um, anything regarding radiation or anything like that, um, I, you know what I'm gonna have to do is I'm gonna have to get uh, uh, an account. Find you. Yeah. I, mean, I, I need. I need. You're a, on Twitter. I'm on Twitter. on Twitter. I'm on Twitter. So you can follow can you on that. Twitter. Yeah, we could actually. That would yeah. be a great way to do this. You're on Twitter because I know that the whole and this was a conversation we had on a previous podcast with another clinician about like how. And Anurban sparked this, you know, he's been on Twitter and he's grown like this Twitter following, you know, from, and, and he tweets, a lot. I, I, I don't know how he does it because he tweets about 10, 15 times a day. It's amazing. Um, and I asked him when we did our podcast, I said, do you do that or do you have someone else do that? He goes, no, 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 I do it all. Um, but it, it's fascinating because it's all academic. He'll throw in every now and then like a family thing or he threw something in one time about India. Uh, he's very proud of his culture. But um, Twitter's a great place. I know you're on there. That's probably the best place because I, that's the only that's my only foray into social media. Um, uh, Which is good because we want you guys in the lab and in the clinic meeting with patients. So you, no one, no, no clinicians should spend their time on social media. I, Hey, but then, but, but then, there, but then there's Honor Bond. He's bringing, he's he's rising the level of all boats around <laughs> yeah, him yeah. with with social social media. Yeah. So so uh, maybe some of them should. Yeah, but uh, yeah, I think tw my my Twitter handle is Grossberg Lab, and awesome. so um, if you direct message me, I'm happy to get back to you and direct you in the right direction if I can't help you. Awesome. Well, Aaron, thank you for taking the trip here to New York for Precede. Thank you for being a guest on the Project Purple podcast. And as we always say. That's a wrap of another episode of the Project Purple Podcast. Thanks for having me. Yeah.